Now, before you get real comfortable, let me do one other thing. I feel like I have to make this spiel every time we do this, and we do it monthly, so um, uh, expect this monthly. Guys, the Christian church is a, um, is a confessional church. We believe things. We are committed to certain things that the world may scoff at, but we're committed to those things. Oftentimes, those things to which we are those things in which we believe are summarized in a formula. One of those formula, formulas is called the Apostles' Creed. It's been used for about mm, 1,700 years. Um, but when I first introduced it back in uh, October, some of you were raised with it, but um, I mean, it, it just sent you into a tailspin because we were saying things like, I believe in the Catholic Church. But that's not a statement of, of uh, a belief in the Roman Catholic Church. It has to do with Catholicity, that is, universality. We believe in a church all over the universe, uh, all, all over the, the planet. There's one in, in Azerbaijan, there's one in Iran, and Turkey, and it's a universal Catholic church. Okay? And secondly, the statement about Jesus descending into hell, that also troubles you. When Jesus Christ was on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is at that moment experiencing separation from God, which is hell. Okay, So it doesn't necessarily mean that he went to the locale. Okay, Now, with all that in mind, would you join me in standing and let's repeat together Words that have been precious to the Christian church for centuries. My brother and sister in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Those are things, guys, that the Christian church is held to. It's not all that we believe, but it is a summary of much of what we believe. Now, one announcement. Guys, uh, you may not know this, but at Grace Van, we have a single adult ministry from ages 22 to 35. If you're a single adult, we have a Bible study on Tuesday nights called 701. It meets at 701 p.m., but it's called 701. We'll meet this Tuesday night in our location uh, in East Memphis. Um, but we're also going to have a supper in my home on the night of Good Friday. This coming Friday night, which is the day called Good Friday, we want to entertain you in our home um, for supper. There's no Bible study that night. We'll just, uh, we'll just get to know each other better. But it's in my home, and it's at 7.01 p.m. 7.01, we'll meet at 7.01 p.m. So if you're a single adult between 22 and 35, Come have supper with us. I need to know you're coming. 
just so that we can buy enough food. So we hope to see you there. We would love to get to know you better. That's this Friday night, Good Friday, my home, supper, 701. Now, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53, and let's close out this five-week study of a very, the most messianic passage in the, or chapter in the entire Old Testament. Guys, because it's so messianic, it is so thick. Thick in content in terms of its uh, representation of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. Just about every word we could spend time on. We're not going to, but all of these statements in here, all of them deserve our attention. So we've spent five weeks on one chapter, three verses a week. So let's go back and finish it up with verses 10, 11, and 12. And let me say again, every word, almost every word deserves our attention. It reads like this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, when I'm dead and gone, I, I hope that there's one thing that we do now that you'll, that you'll continue to do. One of the things that I love about our traditions, I guess you would call them, is a stanza of a hymn that we sing after every Lord's Supper. It comes from Horatio G. Spafford's great hymn, Peace Like a River. Um, but it's the third stanza, and it says this, My sin, oh, the bliss. I mean, can you see him just expostulating, just, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord of my soul. Did you hear that? What a glorious thought. That is my sin, not just part of it. Not just the, um, not just up through college part, but my sin, the whole part, all of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Guys, um, if there is one constant theme in Isaiah 53, it has to do with that. How sin was dealt with. Sin has to be punished. It has to be paid for. It's a debt that I cannot pay, but it's got to be paid. For God to be just and the justifier Sin has got to be paid. So in these three verses, there are four things that I want you to see in 
describing that payment of sin. That is, what was the event where it was paid? What was the source out of which this whole atoning work uh, derived? Uh, Thirdly, what was the effect or the result of that atoning work? And then finally, uh, what was the reward? What was God's reward for that atoning work? Now, the first thing has to do with the event, the how. How is it that sin was paid for? Guys, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because, not because it's not important, it is immensely important, but it has been the theme of the entire chapter. How is sin paid for? So we've discussed it um, a lot in the other four parts of this series, but let me just show you several of the things that are said in this portion. How was sin paid for? What was the event? Look, verse 10. The servant was crushed. Um, He became an offering for sin. This is all in verse 10. Verse 11. He bore their sin. Um, Verse 12. He poured out his soul to death. All of that language. It's rich and poetic and and, uh, profound, but it's all describing the same thing. He he was crushed. He uh, became an offering. He bore their sin. He poured his soul out. It's all the same thing. It is all pointing us to the substitutionary sin bearing of Jesus Christ. If you like the word vicarious better, his vicarious sufferings, fine. But all of this language, all of this chapter is unites to describe in numerous ways what it was that God did to pay for our sin. What was it? Well, this servant that was introduced way back in chapter two, uh, 52, this servant was crushed. Um, he was the one who bore my sins away. Gang, do you remember... Um, Leviticus 16. You ladies who studied Leviticus ought to remember Leviticus 16. It's probably the key chapter in all of Leviticus. It describes the Day of Atonement. You remember that one day out of the calendar year where Israel uh, went through all these shenanigans over uh, symbolically representing how God would deal with their sin, and the the the, uh, the high priest would go in the holiest of holies, and he would carry blood, and you know he poured on the mercy seat. Remember all that? That's Leviticus 16. Well, there's a part of that story or a part of that day that involved two goats. Um, One goat was killed and its blood was used. The other goat came to be known as the scapegoat. Here's what happened to that goat. The high priest came out of the holiest of holies. He would take his hands very dramatically and ceremoniously he would place his hands on the head of the scapegoat, symbolizing the transfer of Israel's sin onto this goat. And then they would send that goat away out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And the point being that the sin had been taken away as far as the east is from the west. Now, here's my point. Gather round, boys and girls. Gather around this cross and lay your hands on the scapegoat. 
because that is how our sin was paid for. Our sin was transferred to Christ and he bore the sin of many. How was sin paid for? There it is. My sin imputed to Christ and he gets crushed on my behalf. That's how it happened. That's how sin was paid for. It had to be paid for, and that's how it was. Now, who's behind that? Who was the originator of this whole idea? Who was the architect of this great redemption? Was it, um, I mean, who was it that ultimately killed Jesus Christ? Was it the Romans? Maybe the Jews? Or, or, or maybe Pilate? I mean, I've heard preachers wax eloquent, and they said, oh, no, it was none of those. It was me that killed Jesus. And there's truth to that. But ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, what you see in, in Isaiah 53 is the theocentricity of the atonement. That means, that means this. The one who killed him was his father. Guys, um, I hate to do this because I'm reading from the ESV, and the ESV robs us of some of the richness of this, I think. If you've got a King James, a New King James, or a New American Standard, verse 10 reads this way. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And then later in that verse, um, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Who's behind it? The Father. It was his pleasure to crush him. It pleased. Yahweh to crush him. There are those who would call this sadism or even deicide. The Bible calls it love. Ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't the cross of Jesus Christ that made God love us, it was the love of God that sent Jesus to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave. It was the love of God that, that was behind this event. And as the Son accomplished his work, it was the pleasure. How can you... I mean, can you get that? No, I don't think... The Father took pleasure it pleased him yes it was the will of the father for the son to be crushed and and i want you to notice that as a result of his being crushed look at verse 11 out of the anguish of his soul he shall see And be satisfied. <laughs> Gang, I don't know about the rest of you, but those are some pretty odd words to be associated with the crucifixion of the Son of Man. It was his pleasure. He was satisfied. Satisfied? He took satisfaction in the death of his son? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's right. What the Son accomplished satisfied 
It satisfied the law. It satisfied every demand of God. But ultimately, it was the Father who was satisfied. God cannot refuse the sacrifice which he himself appointed. What God provides, he accepts. One more story from the Old Testament. You know the story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is asked to go sacrifice Isaac on, in the land of Moriah? Remember that? And so Abraham takes his 10-year-old son or so over to Moriah and he's about to kill him and he stopped. And the angel says, no, there's a, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Go, go kill that. Here's my point. What Abraham did not have to do with his son Isaac God did with his son and he was satisfied. (laughs) Okay, so the event that paid for our sin is the crushing of Christ on the cross and the one who was behind it was the father. Now, I want you to notice in the text what we are told it produced. Guys, um, there is a word in here that it seems to me should be altered somewhat. It's in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So what did the the cross of Jesus Christ produce? You know, if I were writing this, I would have used the word, and uh, as a result of his accomplished work, uh, there's going to be many followers that Jesus Christ will have. As a result of the work of Jesus Christ, there will be many disciples that will join in their ranks. No, ladies and gentlemen, the word is offspring. His work produced offspring, a posterity, me and you. It's not followers. It's not disciples. It's offspring because we share in his nature. There is a little bit of Jesus's blood coursing through my veins. I belong to him. I'm in union with him. I'm one of the offspring. And notice it it says, he shall see. That is, the suffering servant shall see his offspring. Well, I thought he was dead. Oh, you need to come back to church next Sunday. He'll see his offspring because he's alive. That's a veiled reference to his resurrection. Um, the, The will of the father is accomplished by the son dying That was the plan. The plan for what? It was the plan by which the Father would save sinners. Upon what does the gospel, the Christian gospel, depend? The Father's good pleasure. The Father's good pleasure accomplished by the God-provided substitute. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Father is pleased. 
and the father is satisfied. And the end result was that offspring was produced. People who share in his nature. My friend, if you are a Christian at this moment, you might be a follower and you might be a disciple and that's all grand. But let me tell you something else you are. Offspring. You've got a little bit of resemblance to the Savior who died in your place. Guys, the cross was not a defeat. It was the plan. The cross was the plan. This wasn't like Jesus Christ superstar saying, well, he just got carried away and ultimately he went to a cross. No, no. This was the plan. And the plan produced the pleasure of God in that he was satisfied. The work that his son performed was enough. Now, one other thing. I want you to notice the father's response to the finished work of Christ. It's in verse 12. You notice that verse 12 starts with a therefore. Um, this is a description, verse 12 is a description of how God will respond to the accomplished work of his servant. Remember in the earlier verses, it talks about how despised and rejected. It's uh, verse 3. How despised and rejected was the servant. He was ultimately killed because he was so despised and rejected. But once the work is completed, he's not despised and rejected anymore. In fact, he is rewarded because of the victory that he has accomplished. Did you see it? It's, um, he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. No, no. Uh, therefore, he will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Gang, do you know what that language is? Dividing the spoil of the strong? Gang, you've seen that language before. You've seen it elsewhere in the scriptures. That's the language of men who have just uh, uh, completed a great military victory. And so once the, the foe was subdued, the, 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 the conquering army would go throughout the, the, the dead and would gather all the spoil. And then they'd put it in the middle and they would divide the spoil with the strong because victory had been accomplished. What's the response of the father? There's reward. There's reward in the proclamation of victory. And what did he do to honor this? Or what did he do to earn this honor? Well, he poured out his soul to death. Um... Verse 12, that is, he didn't, he didn't just die on the cross to give us some example of um, sacrificial love. No, 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 no. He poured out his soul to death. He bore the sin of many, we're told. Um, he's not setting an example, he's bearing sin. And then we're told he makes intercession for the transgressors. Who does he pray for? Nice, respectable people? People who have Sunday school pins? 
for perfect attendance? No. He makes intercession for the transgressors. All of that is done because human sin has to be paid for. So my friend, listen, if you make little of sin, you make little of the work of Christ because the work of Christ is what was necessary so that sin could be paid for. Now there's one other thing, and I say this for less because it's my favorite. We're told, here's another thing that he did to earn his reward. Verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with who? Good people? No. Healthy people? No, you can't heal healthy people. They don't need healing. But if he was numbered with the transgressors, then he was numbered with me because I'm a transgressor. My dear friend, if you do not see yourself as a sinner, then he wasn't numbered with you. And that means you're not a part of the many for whom he died. And and I would point out, it's not some special brand of sinners that he was numbered with, like awakened sinners or tender-hearted sinners or, or sensible sinners. No, no, he was just numbered with sinners, all kinds of sinners. Gang, um, probably the, mo- the, the favorite parable in all of the New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is found in Luke 15. But did you, I, I think you probably know this, but there's two more parables in Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. It's often called the lost and found of the New Testament because there's a bunch of lost things that get found in it. You probably already knew that. But I wonder if you knew how the chapter started, how it opened. It opens like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled against him saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know why Pharisees and sinners hated him? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. And not only that, he eats with them. Ladies and gentlemen, why why does God, his father, when Christ is on that cross, why does God forsake him? Because he must forsake him. Why? Because you see, at that moment, he was numbered with the transgressors. All the transgressors had gotten around him and laid their hands on him. And he was now bearing not his own sin, but their sin. And so the father whose eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity must forsake him because Jesus has thrown his name into the pot with us. 
He's standing side by side with us. And so when Jesus cries out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, how, why, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's the answer, ladies and gentlemen. Because at that moment, he was being numbered with transgressors. He had identified himself with people like us. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel that I preach is a gospel for sinners. It's not a gospel for nice people. It's not a gospel for respectable people. It's a gospel for sinners with whom Jesus was numbered. Guys, I started this series, uh, I don't know, five weeks ago, whenever it was. And I started, and I introduced you to a word. The word was theodicy, a defense, an argument in favor of God, trying to explain his actions. And the question that I posed was this. How can this God, the God whose eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity, how can God be God and people like us be anything but damned? Here's the answer. Because his righteous servant was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore their sin and now makes intercession for them. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, that's a glorious gospel that's represented in those words, my sin not in part but the whole, nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. My dear friends, never move too far away from the cross. Never cease to be amazed at what at what took place on that cross because it was there that the plan came to its apex and the Father took pleasure and was ultimately satisfied because his Son had completed his saving work on behalf of the transgressors. In my opinion, some of the richest hymnology available to the Christian church are hymns that are describing or seeking to describe this. Here's one. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. 
And now I am happy all the day. My dear brother and sister in Christ, never move very far away from the centrality of the Our Father, uh, it, is, um, it is praiseworthy that you have gone to such extremes to save us and then you've gone to such extremes to describe it, to explain it, to illustrate it, to mention it, to detail it, to give us every possible chance to get it. So, Father, if there are those who you have brought here this morning who have not yet seen it, open their eyes that they might see this glorious work done on behalf, on our behalf, but ultimately designed to accomplish the plan and satisfy the Father and bring him pleasure. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet understood that, would you have mercy on them and give them eyes to see it? The rest of us who have those eyes, oh God, we are glad that the gospel is for sinners because that's the only kind of people we have in this room. Thank you, Lord Jesus for seeing fit to being numbered, to standing side by side with me. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.